Perspective is everything, huh? The little boy wants to be the greatest in the world at something, anything. If it's not hitting, maybe it's pitching, maybe it's something. Um, I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, we're in lesson or message number two of the series that we started last week, Spring Cleaning. How many of you have been cleaning your apartment, your house? Yeah, you're you're not very enthusiastic as you raise your hand, okay? And we, we all do that. We all, ha I mean, at least if we care about our apartment, our house, you know, when the season changes, we want to deal with all of the dirt and all of the grime that winter has, uh, has accumulated. And so we do that, but we often don't deal with what's on the inside and what's on the inside of our own hearts and souls and minds and spirits and that sort of thing. And there's a great book in the New Testament that talks about this. It's the book of Philippians in the Bible's New Testament. Last week, we took a lot of time to try and give you some background as to who wrote the book. Why did he write it? Um, and, of course, the writer is the Apostle Paul. And he's writing from jail, writing from prison in Rome, one of his two or three times in Rome. And uh, we looked at the first chapter. And it has so much to say about attitude. Uh, this this amazing book of Philippians in the New Testament, we learned last week, attitude is a choice, and that Paul chose to be joyful, and uh, the ingredients kind of that helped in that attitude were community and perspective, uh, and today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Now, last week I issued you a little challenge, the Philippians challenge, that you read the whole book of Philippians, all four chapters in one week. Did any of you take the challenge last week? Oh, one person. Okay, good. That's great. So I'm going to keep challenging you to do that. And at the end of the series, if things have been going on as a result, and you say, wow, this has really helped me. I have a little story that I want to tell. That would be wonderful to hear how the Philippians challenge has affected you in some shape or form, hopefully in a good way. All right. So today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. And we'll, we'll read for now verses 1 to 8. Joseph, if you would come to the mic and if you could read uh, that passage, Philippians chapter 2, again in your New Testament, uh, verses 1 to 8. Imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Being in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used uh, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance, of a, appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you, Joe. All right. I love his accent, don't you? Oh, I, I, I'd love to hear that. You know, our church is so blessed because we have people from so many different cultures. It's amazing. You know, here there's probably, I don't know, 25, 30 adults in the room, and there's 15, 20 kids over at number five. 
without exaggeration, there's probably 40 nations represented in our church. It's amazing, amazing to see that. Uh, and we're so blessed with that. Um, so Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. I hope you were, you were kind of listening as he was, he was reading. Uh, this is a magnificent uh, chapter. And really, if you break it down and you slow it down, what you have here is a clash of, of values that are being put on display here. A clash in the way of attitude. And you see the attitudes of what I'll call the kingdom versus the attitudes of the world. And the two are in vivid contrast in this chapter. And the way Paul talks to this church in, in Philippi is very much like, um, you know, like a, a, a sports coach would talk to a team. Have any of you seen these movies, you know, where before the big game, the coach sits in front of the whole team and they give them this big pep talk so that they'll win the game? Any of you ever seen that or experienced that? Okay, this is kind of what he's, what he's doing with these people. And when I talk about the kingdom and the world, in the scripture, this means two very specific things. Um, the kingdom is what God is doing uh, on planet earth through his people, through the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a priesthood. I'm not talking about a hierarchy. I'm not talking about a bunch of church policies and rules and regulations. This is not what the Bible means when it talks about church and when it talks about the kingdom. Uh, the church is the people whom God has called. Uh, there's a really uh, basic word in the, in the Greek language that just meant a meeting of people, the ecclesia of people, the meeting of people. And Jesus, he says, I will build my church. This is my ecclesia. Uh, these are my people. These are the people who I have called out. And, uh, and it, the kingdom is what God is doing in this world. And uh, yet the world, when you look into the pages of the New Testament, is the, all these ideas that are set against God, uh, all under the domination of the enemy, we're told in the New Testament, and the two ideas are in constant clash with one another, in constant opposition, uh, one against the other. And Paul is talking to these people in very strong terms, uh, like, a, like a coach would talk to a team. Um, and he's making several uh, appeals to them. But really, again, what you see is the values of the world set against the values of uh, the kingdom. So first little piece of info that Paul is giving to the people here. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. So he says this, if you were listening to Joe's before, being like-minded. He wants them to be of one mind, um, having the same love, uh, being one in spirit and in purpose. This is an appeal for unity. This is an appeal for them to, to get along with one another. The same mind, the same love, the same purpose. And what this means in, in reality is that we agree to move forward uh, even though we may be very diverse people. We agree on a common direction, we agree on a common vision, on a common purpose, and we move forward. He is not saying that you have to be uniform. 
And that's, there's a difference between unity and uniformity, okay? In unity, you can have people who disagree with one another. And yet they make a decision to say, hey, we're all going to move forward in the same direction. We're all going to be united for this common purpose, this common thought, this common goal. Even though we may be diverse, even though we may disagree, we're all going to keep going forward. That's unity. Um, our church is founded on a vision to reach the person who is far from God, to reach the one who is far from God, that we would together become passionate followers of Jesus. This week I had a conversation with a, a guy in our church. He's next door with the kids right now. And he was talking to me about a conversation that he's going to have with a coworker who got all these questions about church. And he said, can you help me? Can you send me some information so that I can have this conversation with this friend of mine? Because he's interested in trying to reach people who are far from God. That is a conversation that just lights up my week. And oh, that the people of this church would get excited about, hey, how can I share the gospel with an unchurched person? Uh, many, many Christians today, people who call themselves Christians uh, uh, in churches around North America, if not the world, if you were to ask the average Christian, are you a real one? Have you, have, you done the, have you done the things that God has said to do? So Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples. If you were to ask the average Christian, even if you were to ask yourself in this room today, uh, if you call yourself a believer, and I believe all of you do, have you made a disciple? And what this means is, have you interacted with someone to such a point that that person is now a follower of this Jesus? Because that is the mark of the disciple. They make disciples. And that's a really, really tough question for most of us to answer, including myself. And oh, that we would get excited about wanting to reach people with what we know about this Jesus. That's the vision that we're united on um, in this church. And um, so it, it, the idea is, hey, you can be from a different nation. You can be of a different opinion. You can be diverse. But we agree on a common goal, a common purpose. And that can happen anywhere in life. You're with me so far. So that's unity. Uniformity is when you're a duplicate of somebody else. You're a photocopy uh, of somebody else. This is what we see in the cults. The modern cults do this. Um, I can spot a Jehovah's Witness a mile away. I can spot a Mormon a mile away, in particular the Mormons. Because the Mormons, especially the men, all have the same haircut. They all wear the same kind of suit. They all have a little badge on. Some of them still ride bicycles. And you see them in twos, and you see them with their little books in their hands, and you say, boom, that, those are Mormons. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, very similar. I can spot them a mile away because they are taught uniformity, and they all sing off the same song sheet. You talk to a Mormon in Utah, and you talk to a Mormon in Montreal. They're going to say exactly the same thing to you. They have been pre-programmed, pre-taught, indoctrinated, they will give the same answer. They are completely uniform. A Jehovah's Witness, same thing. They're trained and indoctrinated to give the exact same answer, no matter where they are in the world. Incredible at uniformity. But that's not unity. And it, when you're in a modern cult, what happens is when you think differently and when you question those beliefs, 
And when you make those questions public, that's when things start to get a little bit interesting. And that's when you realize, uh-oh, this is not unity at all. This is uniformity. And I'm a clone uh, of somebody else or of some belief system that I may not even understand. Uh, just uh, just uh, joking around a little bit for you, if you have those, those groups that come to your house, let me give you a couple of tips, all right? If you do not want them coming back, don't take their stuff, all right? If you take the pieces of paper, they will come back because what you've done is you've excited them because you actually responded by taking some of their pieces of paper, whatever they are. Now, I always take their papers, always, because I love to talk with them. Uh, and over the years, we've had, shall we say, some very interesting conversations. And even in the metro, when I see them in the metro, I go to them. Right, And I talk to them, and I engage them, and do all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but if you take their stuff, they will come back. Now, a tip for, the, for you who deal with Mormons, and there is a Mormon uh, tabernacle in, um, in um, a temple in Greenfield Park, not too far from here, actually. Uh, when the Mormons come to your house, and I, 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 just, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but Mormons have very unusual beliefs about undergarments. So if you want to get them, their face to turn red and you want them to get a little embarrassed and change the conversation, just say to the Mormons, I've heard that you have beliefs about your undergarments. Can you please explain those beliefs to me? I guarantee you the conversation will change and the faces will become a little bit red, especially for the men, okay, because they have particular beliefs about these things. You can look them up online if I've teased you a little bit. Just Google it and you'll see. Uh, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, if they come to your house, take a, a little pencil or something that you can wipe off and just put a little 666 on your forehead, Okay. And just say, hi, I'd love to talk to you. Just a little 666 there. And they, they will, they'll be like, okay, we got a live one here and they will leave you alone. Okay, so just, just, just some tips for you when you deal with the modern cultists. But that's uniformity. That's what they teach. And virtually every modern cult will, will try to um, ensure that they've got duplication going on. Because that's how they're successful, and some of them are extremely successful. Uh, more successful than most churches, I would add, at propagating uh, their doctrine, whatever it might be. Uh, but God does not want you to be a photocopy of somebody else. He's not interested in making clones. God loves diversity. Uh, people often say, well, how can, how can Christianity be real, and how can the church be worth being a part of when there's so many different kinds of churches, so many different denominations, and you've got your Presbyterians over here, and your Pentecostals over here, and your Baptists over there, and all this mishmash of all these different denominations, and how can God be a part of that? Well, that's, that's the diversity in action, you see. And we can agree on the major things. You know, we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that he was God in the flesh. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe in the Trinity. Those are the basic, basic essentials. But the rest of it, you know, some of it's up for grabs. And there's some wiggle room. And that's where you see the diversity in action. And that, my friends, is of God. 
Uh, don't don't think that it isn't. It is because God is a God of diversity, and uh, He's not intimidated by that diversity at all. He does not want you to be a photocopy, a clone of someone else. Uh, I happen to have an identical twin brother, so I am a clone in a technical sense. And you know, at the very moment of conception, uh, the, the you know those twenty three chromosomes from each parent came together. And they decided to duplicate themselves for no apparent reason. This is what an identical twin is. Poof! And you've got two of them growing in the womb. Uh, there's one lady in here who has, who has twins, fraternal twins, I think. So, pas identique? No. But, but same thing. Their, their genes are very similar. My genes are exactly the same as my twin brother. Exactly. We are, in that sense, clones of one another. Do you know how different I am from my twin brother? Oh my, if he, if he stood here and he, we stood next to each other, you would say, wow, the two of you look exactly the same. But then if you heard him speak and the things that he would say and perhaps the views that he has and the personality that he has, you'd say, whoa, you two are very, very different. This is because God is a God of diversity. He doesn't want uniformity, but he does want unity, especially uh, in the church. So that's the first idea uh, that Paul has for his team, if you will. The next one is rivalry opposes God. Rivalry opposes him. So uh, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, or in some translations, rivalry. You see the little graphic on the screen there. It says, the prime motivation for all human behavior, one little plastic duck talking to the other, the prime motivation for all human behavior is the need to feel superior to someone else. And this is what we learn in, in the world. Um, be first, like the little boy you know, on the screen who wanted to be the best hitter ever. And he struck out all the time, so he says, well, I must be the best pitcher ever then. He has to be first, has to be the best in everything. And this is what we're, I mean, we're taught this from, from infancy, from childhood we're taught this. You see these little kids going to school, and all they're doing is competing against one another. Who can get the highest mark? Who's better at this? Who's the best at this? And it's always be first, be first, be first. And that can morph itself very quickly into this idea of selfish ambition and rivalry. We're trained in school. We take it into our adult lives. And what? We want the promotion in the job. We will climb over whoever we can climb over in order to get it. Uh, we're first in our relationships. It's about our needs first. It's not about our spouses or our children's. It's about us first, us first, me first all the time. Uh, relationships, jobs, school, you know, my house is better than your house. My grass is greener than your grass. My wife is prettier than your wife. My husband is more handsome than your husband. My kids are smarter than your kids. Da, da, da. On and on and on it goes. Let's be first in everything. And we typically feel like we have to be better than the next person. And this, this again, is this idea of rivalry, of selfish ambition. Even in the church, this manifests itself. And we see this vividly in many examples in Scripture. Uh, there's one that I have on the screen there from a little short letter 
from the Apostle John to a friend of his named Gaius. It's in 3 John. It's a very, very short little letter in the New Testament. And he's talking to his friend and he's commending his friend about his hospitality to people. And then he writes of a church, presumably in the same place. And he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, that's his name, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us, John writes. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. So, so Gaius, you're a hospitable dude, but this guy Diotrephes, he's the church boss. And he's in control of everything, and he loves to be first. He loves to control who comes in and who doesn't come in. He doesn't welcome these other believers. He's not hospitable. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. He wants to be first, wants to be in control, wants to be, in, wants to be the boss, wants to push people around. And this can happen in volunteer settings and in churches. I've seen it often, often. How toxic it is in a church when you're dealing with a personality like that. And I have seen situations in, in more than one church where you get a person like that who wants to be first. And my, my, the pain that is the end result. The pain caused to families, the pain caused to leaders when people want to be first. And this is not what pleases God. This is rivalry and this opposes God. It's not keep calm. You know, I am number one. Uh, I, I have the privilege as a minister of doing people's funerals. This is a great privilege for whatever reason, though I'm only in my mid forties, I've done many, many, many funerals. I have people who have, who have met with me who are alive and said, will you do my funeral? Sure. Just give me a call. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I don't know why that is, but, but you know, I just, I, I'm privileged to do a lot of them. Can I tell you something that I've observed at funerals? When people get up and they speak about the deceased, they don't say, oh, he or she was first. They don't say, oh, they were the, they were the best whatever. They don't really talk about all the achievements per se as to how great the person was in terms of their achievements. They tend to talk more about the influence that the person may have left upon them and the relationship and the, maybe the sensitivity or the care that the person may have left behind on them. That tends to be more what they talk about, not, oh, this person was the best car salesman ever. I mean, they sold like so many cars. They broke the record for selling cars. It's amazing how many cars they sold. No, they don't really talk about that. They talk about, well, I remember when this person and I sat down and we had lunch together. I remember how this person cared for me. I remember how this person was so sensitive to my needs and they put themselves second for me. And that's what you tend to hear at funerals. And also you see when people are exceptional at not wanting to be first all the time, you tend to see more people show up when it's time to remember them when they're gone. What will people say about you when you're gone? That's a great question to ask yourself when it comes to, well, is this whole selfish ambition thing worth it? Not really. It's a value that's opposed to God. 
Uh, another one that Paul gives to us, uh, self-glory. Self-glory. It's a close relative of selfish ambition. Self-glory opposes God. So Paul says, do nothing out of vain conceit, or in some translations, self-glory. And you see the guy there, and it's all about him. He, he gets all the attention. He's the center of everything. The world revolves around him. And we see this thought often in modern culture, in the modern society. You know, if people start talking about God and depending on a God of sorts, well, you are God. You know, you control your own destiny. You're high up on the evolutionary chain and you can do what you want. Don't you don't need to depend on some other God. You need to depend on yourself and everything that you need is on the inside of you. You don't need to look outside for any kind of assistance whatsoever. You are God. Uh, but God's idea is very different in the scripture. It's no, you should learn to practice a little bit of humility, little humility there. In fact, if you look at the Bible from cover to cover, uh, you see that the very origins of Satan himself can be found in this kind of self-glory, this kind of pride. Uh, there are some interesting passages that are used to explain this. Uh, one is in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, wrote a long, long book, 66 chapters long. And Isaiah, in chapter 14 of his big book, is addressing um, uh, the king of Babylon at the time. This is like 6th or 7th century B.C. And he talks about this king, but he uses terms that seem to be talking about somebody else. He uses very wide terms that seem to be, it's almost like the king of Babylon is an image for someone else. And this is what he says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, uh, in some old translations, Lucifer, it says there, how you have fallen from heaven, son of the dawn, you who have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, verse 13, I will ascend to the heavens. Ha ha. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That's self-glory. That's pride. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high, like God that is. But you, the prophet says, are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Wow, pride found in the heart of this apparently more than just the king of Babylon. Um, Ezekiel chapter 28, also referring to a, a real person, but using terms that seem to suggest someone else is in mind uh, for the prophet. And in Ezekiel 28, um, uh, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, the king of Tyre is a real king. Again, this is centuries before Jesus was born. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. And the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet, son of man, take up a lament concerning this king of Tyre. And say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, 
the garden of God. This is why scholars say he must be talking about someone more than just the king of Tyre. Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and mountings were of gold. You know, on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. That's some sort of angelic being in the Old Testament. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. And verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom. Because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth and I made you a spectacle before the kings. The very origins of this being that the Bible refers to as Satan himself are founded in this kind of self-glory and this kind of pride. And the problem with it, the problem with the idea is when a person becomes that way, they simply do not need God. They simply do not need what Jesus did on the cross for them. It's irrelevant. And so what they do is they insult God and they insult the work that Jesus did on the cross by declaring, I don't need you, I'm better than you, and I am God. So what you've done for me is not relevant whether it even happened at all. And this is the highest insult to God who has given his life for people. And these are the kinds of ideas that you see clashed in Philippians chapter 2, against these other ideas like unity, for example, that we looked at before. And there's an attitude that Paul is trying to encourage the team, if you will, at Philippi to consider. Um, This kingdom attitude, you can call it. And he says this, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. This is a kingdom value. Consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also the interests of others, not just yourself. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Old quote from C.S. Lewis, I'm pretty sure, who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. This is a kingdom value that Paul wants to teach these people in this church, founded on humility and dealing with your attitude, your mindset. So he gives three examples in the chapter as he winds the chapter up. Uh, Example number one, first and foremost, is Jesus. And we read it before. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The idea being here, and this is a deep, deep theological thing. Books have been written on this little passage of Scripture. That Jesus, though he is God, though he has all the attributes of deity, he voluntarily lays those things down, lays down his rights and his prerogatives as deity and humbles himself. And comes into the world as a little baby in a manger and voluntarily submits to a cross to atone for the sins of humanity. He emptied himself 
of what was rightfully his. Humbling himself for other people. And this is the example that he's calling the Philippians to follow. It's not that you have to go and die for someone. It's that you have to humble yourself. And it's that you have to consider other people before you start considering yourself. And this is the total reverse of the way that the world works. The way the world works, it's about me first and me only. And then if I have time, maybe I'll worry about somebody else. And the way the Bible is, it flips it on its head. It says, you think about others before you think about yourself. You, you lead by serving, not by being someone's boss, for example. And this is the example that we see first and foremost in Jesus himself. Some people, when they read the Bible, they, they struggle when they read the Gospels, they say, Jesus praying. They say, well, how could Jesus pray? If he's God, how can he pray to himself? doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes sense when you understand this passage. He voluntarily emptied himself. And so when he prays to God the Father, he's praying as a man, as a man dependent on God the Father. doesn't mean that Jesus is any less God. It means he voluntarily does that. He voluntarily shows us that example. And uh, this is very, very helpful when we read the scripture. It makes us understand more. So example number one, Jesus. You say, I can't be like Jesus. I can't die for somebody else. That's not what you're being asked to do. You're being asked to humble yourself. And that which may be rightfully yours, you may lay it down in turn that somebody else may benefit. Thinking about others before you think about yourself. Wow, that takes a totally different attitude. Example number two that he brings up is a young man by the name of Timothy. And he says this, uh, talking about Timothy who's with him in Rome uh, in prison. He says, I've got no one like Timothy. Timothy, who, who takes a genuine interest, Philippians, in your welfare. He's quite interested in you, this, this young man, Timothy. For everyone looks out for his own interests. This is a world value, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has served with me. Timothy thinks about you before he thinks about himself. He thinks about the cause of the gospel before he thinks about himself. And he looks after your welfare. Genuinely looks after your welfare. Oh, my son Timothy. And he talks about Timothy in such fond terms and whether he's going to send him uh, to the Philippians. And then finally, example number three. A guy with a complex name, Epaphroditus. And you see him in the chapter at the end. And he's a, a person who the Philippians had sent to Paul in Rome with some kind of gift, probably some food, maybe some money. We don't know what it was, but it was something physical to look after his needs, something tangible. And he says, Epaphroditus, my fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Um, Honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Again, these examples, putting others before yourself. It runs so counter to the way that the world works. I put a, a video up on, on our Facebook page this week just shooting the, uh, the, the work of the food bank in, in Brossard, one of the biggest now in the South Shore. And that's a tremendous example of people who say, hey, we want to look after the needs of other people, not just our own needs. 
We want to think of others before we think of ourselves. And you've got volunteers there. I'm one of them who serve. And, you know, they're just there serving. Just to say, hey, you know, people are hungry. <laughs> people need to eat. And it's a good thing to, to, to give back and to consider other people's needs uh, before you consider those of yourself. Can I tell you how this works in the practical? Those of you who are in the marketplace, those of you who are working in some shape or form, do you, if you work with people, do you, ever, do you ever prepare the ball so that it can be handed off to the other person in your chain? Do you know what I'm saying? If you work in a team environment, do you ever like consider the next guy or the next girl who has to deal with whatever you touched, whatever project, whatever, whatever uh, uh, job you were working on, and someone else now has to touch it? Have you ever considered how, what you're giving to the person? Is it something that they can work with or is it a mess? Um, I used to work in, in commercial printing for years and years and years. And we had an expression, we call it a dog's breakfast. Have you heard that expression before? You don't want to give a dog's breakfast to somebody else who you're working with. Because if you hand them a dog's breakfast, it's a mess, right? Those of you who have dogs, right? Dogs don't care what it looks like. They just want to eat it. <laughs> you don't want to give your coworker a dog's breakfast to work with. You want to give them something to say, hey, my coworker actually cares that I get something that I can work with here. Wow, wouldn't that be a novel thought? You know, are you thinking about the next person down the line who has to inherit whatever you did? That's a really practical tip. That's a kingdom value. Those of you who are in relationships, uh, married, dating, whatever, uh, kids in the house, kids not in the house, do you consider the needs of the other person before you consider your own needs? Or is it always you first? I can tell you I've sat down with many, many couples and selfishness is a big, big problem in many couples. Oh, it's all about his needs first. No, it's all about her needs first. It's her, 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 and I never get what I want. No, it's him, 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 and I never get what I want. And the two, they, they despise one another. Why? Because of selfish, it's got to be them first. When the scripture would teach, no, 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 no. You consider the needs of your spouse before you consider your own. You consider the needs of your kids before you consider your own. Doesn't mean you don't care about yourself. Doesn't mean you, you treat yourself badly. It just means you change the sequence a little bit. And you say, hey, I want to think about this person first before I look after myself. Huh? I want to see what's good for their benefit because that's what Jesus did. So it happens in relationships. It happens in the job. happens in school. Even those of you who are in school. You look at the, at the, the kids who you are with. My, my daughter's in uh, what they call Sec 2 here in Quebec. That's like grade 8 in the real world, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, you meet these. She meets all kinds of kids and all kinds of kids with all kinds of problems. Wow, the stuff that you guys are dealing with as teenagers is pretty profound. Some of us who are adults in the room, like we didn't have it the same way. It's a little bit different. Uh, but who's looking after, who's, who's seeing the kids who are cutting themselves in school? Uh, who's seeing the kids? Who's interested in those kids who are experimenting with drugs and alcohol and sex and they're 12 and 13 years old? These are the kind of kids that your kids are going to school with. Just, just, just to, I mean, I know that's a bit shocking, but that's what's happening in a, lot of, in a lot of these kids' lives. Like their lives can be a train wreck really, really early. 
So maybe some of the kids whose lives are a little more stable, a little more healthy, are looking out for that kid who's in a, in a destructive lifestyle already. It's saying, you know, it's not about me getting the higher mark than you. It's about me maybe helping you a little bit through some of the struggles that you have. Those are all kingdom, those are all kingdom values that we can put into life, all based on this chapter uh, from Philippians chapter 2. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not, but thinking of yourself less. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to just invite the band back if they would go ahead and begin to play uh, even, even while uh, we're finishing up here. And I think this is so practical for you, so relevant for you in many areas of life. Uh, so I want to just take a moment to, to pray with you. Maybe there are those of you here today, you say, oh man, you know, you don't know what I work in. You don't know the environment that I work in. You don't know what's going on in my classroom. You know, you don't know what's going on in my marriage. You don't know what's going on in my house. This is a real challenge if I'm going to put this into play. Okay, let, let me have a, a word of prayer with you. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your word that speaks to us in such, such practical ways. And even in this moment, if you just want to take a private moment with me and just, just, to, uh, just to acknowledge, maybe there's some of you and you say, this is exactly, exactly what I need. I'm facing a situation. Again, it's in my home. It's in my marriage. It's in my work. It's in my school. And I just need uh, like a point of contact for someone to pray with me. If that's you, can you just slip up your hand so that I can see you? And so I can pray for you. Yes, thank you for your honesty. Anyone else, you just put your hand up and put it down so that I can see you. Uh, I'm not going to call you to the front. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? It's really practical stuff. Yes, yes, I see your hand. Anyone else? Just helpful for me to know. Father, in the name of Jesus, give people wisdom, God. Give them courage to not do what may come instinctively, not do what may come naturally. But, Lord, that which would come from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, uh, Lord, that we would follow that example of Jesus and that we would behave in a way that's so different than what people may be accustomed to, so different than the way this world runs. We pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen.